Uh, I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 15. We are in the middle of uh, the Last Supper with uh, Jesus and his disciples. Uh, let me remind you of a couple of things. This, um, uh, the, the 13th, 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of John tell us about this Last Supper event. Now, as we've made mention before, um, John does not cover some of the details that uh, some of the other gospel writers do. Both Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us, and, uh, uh, and their gospels are widely read and widely understood by the ones that are going to be reading John's gospel. Uh, as far as the details and, and how the Last Supper came about and that kind of stuff. So John doesn't give us any of that information. Uh, with that in mind, let me remind you of some things that if you're just reading the book of John, then, uh, then you're going to be lost by. And one is this Last Supper is the Feast of the Passover. Well, you know what the Passover represented. The Passover represented the, uh, the deliverance of Israel from Egypt uh, with signs and wonders, it was the the final, of, the last of the ten plagues, where the angel of death came and and um, uh, any house that he found that didn't have the blood over the doorpost, um, the firstborn of that house died, and so the Passover was the source of the blood that provided for the well-being of Israel, the uh, the longevity of Israel, the the firstborn living, and um, and that was something that was commanded by Moses for Israel. Here's what you need to do with your family every year at this time. Teach your children through this. Well, as a result, uh, Jesus having the Passover feast with his disciples, everything on that table represents something about him. Paul said that Christ was our Passover crucified for us. Everything about this Passover meal has to do with Jesus and what he represents for his disciples and to us as the church. And so uh, chapter 13 tells us that when the Passover meal was, uh, King James says ended, it just means came to pass. Uh, probably a better translation would be when the meal was delivered to the upper room where they were having it. Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, gets up, girds himself, and, and uh, washes the feet of his disciples. After that, he sits back down, talks to him about what he did and why he did it, talks to him about being clean, which is a type of the washing of the water by the word, to prepare them for the Passover meal. Now, remember, the Passover meal is Jesus' sacrifice. So as Jesus sits down at the table, he talks to them about uh, about the things that, that are to come. First thing he does is he talks about how troubled he is because someone is going to betray him. They figure out who it is or, or start asking questions according to the other gospel accounts. Who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? Finally, John asks, tell us who which one is going to be or tell me which one is going to be. He says, the one that I give the special piece of the meal to, and he gave that to Judas. Judas then goes out and makes preparation for that betrayal. And as soon as Judas has left the scene, then Jesus starts talking to his disciples about the things that are yet to come. Now, all this time he's sitting at the table. Everything about the Passover meal, and I'm not just talking about their Passover meal, everything about the Passover meal represents something about the Messiah. There was the egg, there was the, the lamb, there was the bread, the special bread, there was the special place setting, the Elijah place, place setting that was set for the Messiah. That's what Jesus takes when he says, this is my body which is broken for you, this bread is my body which is broken for you, this cup is my blood in the New Testament. These are all symbolic things. And as a result, or in the same manner, I should say, Jesus is symbolizing everything about his place seated at the table. Now, you got to realize, if Jesus is the Passover lamb that was slain for us, he wouldn't be seated at the Passover table. He's on the table. Do you see the point I'm trying to make? So if he's on the table, what's Jesus' purpose in talking to them while he's seated at the table with them? Basically, he's saying, this is what all this stuff is. So it's as if Jesus is speaking from a resurrection standpoint to the disciples during this whole Passover lamb uh, or Passover um, discourse. The Paschal discourse is what it's called in in, uh, many commentaries. He's talking to them from a resurrection standpoint. It's the same as in Psalm 23 where it says, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It's like Jesus is sitting there, the whole table is there, and everything on the table represents something that belongs to them because he's going to lay down his life. He's just told them, except a corn of wheat fall into the earth and die, it abides alone, but if it dies, then it brings forth much fruit. That's me. So everything about this is symbolic. Everything about this is symbolism in action. So what does he do? In chapter 14, he tells them about the comfort that he's going to provide for them after he goes away. Everything about chapter 14 is, if you had known me, 
you would have known who I am and where I'm going, Philip. He keeps talking about the, the things that are going to take place after he's gone. Don't let your heart be troubled. I'll come back. I'm preparing a place for you, and I'll come back and receive you unto myself. Everything is about I. Jesus is speaking in the 14th chapter. Everything is about I. What that symbolizes is what he does for us after he departs from the earth. In other words, what he's doing for us at the right hand of the Father. Then he talks about the Holy Ghost. He talks about when the Comforter has come. Basically, he's telling them, my work won't be interrupted by me leaving. Did you get that? That's what chapter 14 is all about. My work, Jesus is speaking, saying my work won't be interrupted because of me leaving because I'm sending the Holy Ghost and he'll enable you to do the same works that I did. Chapter 15 changes everything. The end of chapter 14, Jesus has just said, my peace I leave with you. Verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Then he skips down to verse, uh, we'll skip down to verse 31. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father has given me commandment, even so I do. Notice the last phrase of chapter 14. Arise, let us go hence. He makes everybody stand up. Why? Because this is symbolic. Chapter 14 was him sitting at the table talking about, here's what I'll do for you in the resurrection. This is the work of God. This is the, 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 well, you could even say the divine plan and purpose of God. The grace of God in action is chapter 14. Chapter 15 is a whole different subject. Chapter 15 is not what I'm going to do for you. Chapter 15 is about, here's what you're supposed to do. The word ye is in chapter 15 22 times. That's why he said, arise, let us go hence. That's why chapter 14 ends with them standing up. Now it's not about being seated at the right hand of the Father. Now it's about what are you going to do? You're my disciples. What are you going to do? Now the key to understanding chapter 15 is to understand the first six verses. If you get the first six verses, everything else falls in place. But wars have been fought over the first six verses, chapter 15. Now who's he talking to? The first rule of Bible interpretation. I love this. Brother Hagin said this when I was in Bible school and it just knocked my socks off because it makes sense. He's the first preacher I ever heard that made sense. Well, maybe not the first one, but one of the few. He said this. He said, the simplest rule of Bible interpretation is threefold. Number one, who's doing the talking? Number two, who are they talking to? And number three, what are they talking about? Now, folks, that rule of Bible interpretation will get you through most of the scriptures in the Bible. There may be a couple of questions you find out or have and, and uh, uh, a couple of things that you uh, may be stumped by. But for the most part, those three questions will get you through just about anything you need to. That rule holds very true here. Who's doing the talking? Everybody knows it's Jesus. Who is he talking to? That is everything about understanding chapter 15. Who's he talking to? Well, he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to the 11, not the 12. Judas is already gone. He's talking to the 11. Who are the 11? The 11 are those that are the equivalent of believers. Now, the only thing that keeps them from being saved or born again at the point in time that Jesus is speaking in chapter 15 is the fact that Jesus hadn't yet been to the cross. But he's washed their feet, separated them for service. In other words, he made them worthy of the Passover meal before they ever partook of it, which signifies his death. His burial and His resurrection. It represents their escape from the judgment of God because of His death. So He's talking to those who are, in, for all intents and purposes, saved from the standpoint that they've committed themselves to Him. Now, do you understand what I'm trying to say on that? Technically, they're not born again. They don't get born again until chapter 20. And they couldn't be born again because Jesus had to be risen from the dead before anybody could be born again. But that's the only thing that's keeping these guys from being born again at this point. So they are in line for. Their decision has already been made. Jesus said, whosoever will, let him come. They've already made their decision. Their will is to follow him. Peter's even spoken up and said, I'm not going to deny you. I'll never deny you. I'll go to the cross with you. I'll die with you. And Jesus says, are you going to deny me three times before morning? They've made the decision. They've made the commitment to follow God. They're going to be with him. He's talking to them as if he knows already, and of course he does, as if he knows already that they are his believers, his disciples, his followers. They make up the first wave of the church. So he's writing to those 
that would correspond in our day and time to those that are saved. And notice what he says. Starts off in verse 1, he says, I'm the true vine. There are several different things that Jesus said he was the true something or other. He said, I'm the true shepherd. He said, I'm the true minister of the sanctuary, the tabernacle. He said, I am several times. He said, I'm the true something or other. Well, what is he talking about? He's saying that you may have an example of something, but it's not the real deal. I'm the real thing. Now here he says, I'm the true vine. Now why is that? He picks an example that he's going to carry out, carry on through the next several verses that's significant in Judaism. In, um, Psalm 80, verse, uh, well, let me just look at these. Let me, uh, let me see if I can pick out some of these. Psalm 80, I'm not sure what verse it is, but I'll find it real quickly. Verse, uh, seems like it's verse 9 or 10, something like that. Psalm 80, uh, verse 8. It says, Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt, thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Isaiah chapter 5 tells us who that vine is very specifically. Uh, verse 7, it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. In other words, the vine is the, is Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse... Uh, what is it? Verse... Oh, it's verse 21. Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? In other words, Jesus is saying the same thing that Paul said when he was writing to the Romans. He said, not all of Israel is Israel. Just like you've got the the, uh, uh, seed of Abraham that was a spiritual seed, you had a, a a natural seed, a natural line, a natural descendant, uh, descendants of Abraham that we know of now as the Arabs. Well, what he's saying is not everybody that's a child, a natural born child of Abraham is the seed of Abraham. Jesus is saying, I'm the true vine. I am the seed of Abraham. Singular. I am the seed of Abraham. That means everybody that is in Christ is part of or makes up the seed of Abraham. The seed of Abraham is not Israel. It used to be. Jesus is changing that. He says, I'm the true vine. In other words, it's through me, Abraham through me, that the blessings of God belong to. So he says, I'm the true vine and my father is the husbandman. Now here he talks about God being the the not only the proprietor, the owner, the property owner of the vineyard, but he talks about God as being the one that tends it. Now, why is that important? Because the same care that God gave and exercised over Jesus as the true vine, he'll exercise over the branches that Jesus is going to identify as us. So he's saying, God will love you just like he loves me. Verse 2, every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he purges it that it may bring forth more fruit. So clearly... Everybody knows that Jesus is saying, I'm the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. If you mess up, he's just waiting for the chance to get rid of you. Folks, basically, that's how that verse has been interpreted. And it's wrong. It's just flat wrong. Notice it says here, every branch in me that bears not fruit. What is the purpose of Jesus' conversation? What is he talking about? He's talking about fruit. That's why it's important to realize who's doing the talking and what are they speaking about. He's talking about fruit. Fruit is mentioned eight times in the uh, in the 15th chapter. Here it says, every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. What does it mean to take away? Well, it's been interpreted by some that want to, that whose doctrine is that you, if you mess up, then you lose your salvation and all that kind of stuff, that this is what God does. But remember, who's he talking to? He's talking to the equivalent of believers. He's talking to disciples. So it says, every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. There's a couple of things that you need to realize about these uh, these words that are used. Here where it says, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, where it says, beareth not fruit, the, the words that are used does not mean that never bears fruit. It means that no longer is bearing fruit. See, they've borne fruit by being with Jesus already. 
So what he's saying is very simply this, every branch in me that beareth not fruit is no longer fruit bearing, he taketh away. Now the word taketh away in the Greek is a primary root. It's uh, in the Strong's it's, uh, G142. And here's the definition. It's a primary root and it means to lift up by implication to take up or away. Now if you look at the number of times it's translated uh, in the Bible, used in the, the New Testament, there's a lot of times where it's used uh, as the word take, six occurrences where it's translated to take, 26 occurrences where it's translated away, but there are 37 occasions, 37 instances where it's translated up. Let me give you a couple of these. Uh, Luke chapter 17, verse 13, And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Let me give you another one. Acts chapter 4, verse 24, and when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. Revelation chapter 10, it's talking about an angel. I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven. What is it telling us? It's telling us that this verse, this word that's translated that, is the same word that's translated over in John 11, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it says, where the, uh, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said unto the Father, Father, I thank you that you hear me, that you hear me always. So why do we get the idea, and why is the idea uh, so prevalent that this is talking about him getting rid of our salvation or dumping us from being in, the, the, from being in Christ? That's not what it means. He's using an example of farming and taking care of vineyards. And so what he says is, every branch in me that is no longer bearing fruit, I want to change that. And so what I will do is I will lift it up. Now, if you know anything about growing, uh, growing grapes or, or, you know, having vineyards and stuff like that in the Middle East, and you can look up, look this up. Don't take my word for it. Look it up yourself. One of the things that takes place is that when they're not properly, when the vines are not properly tied, then they start hanging on the ground. And once they touch the ground, the fruit's no good. Because the fruit can't grow along the ground and stay any good. They'll become diseased, it'll come, it'll become old, it won't, it won't ripen, it won't mature the way that it's supposed to. So literally what it said is, and every branch that stops bearing fruit, I'll lift up. In other words, I'll do what it takes to help you to continue to bear fruit. Now what's the implication here? The implication is, if you're in the vine, you should bear fruit. And it's not or else. which so many people seem to think and which so many people interpret this verse of Scripture to mean, it's not bear fruit or else. It's very simply, I'll help you bear the fruit. Now, why is that true? Because he's just told them in chapter 14 over and over and over again, don't worry about me being gone. You're still connected with me. I'll make sure that the Holy Ghost is available to, to help you, enable you to do the works that I've been doing all along. Right? So he says, every branch in me that is no longer bearing fruit, he, the Father, takes away or literally lifts up, and every branch that bears fruit, he purges it. And, of course, we all know that purge means to to afflict in great measure, to bring great tragedy into your life, to make you sick so that you can't stand any, you know, the next day. Well, that's not what purge means. This word purge is the word translated clean in the next verse. So literally what it's saying is, and every branch that bears fruit, so there's two options, a fruit-bearing branch or a fruit or a branch that used to bear fruit but is not bearing fruit anymore. If it's not bearing fruit anymore, I'll lift it up so that it'll bear fruit. If it is bearing fruit, then I'm going to purge it. That means to clean it. Literally, it's talking about washing it. Now, if you know, if you want to study up on or do some research, you'll find out that one of the biggest things in that part of the world, as far as vineyards are concerned, is that they have to wash the vines. They have to wash the insects off. They wash the disease off and, and so forth. So literally what it's talking about is the washing of the water with the word. I'm the vine and my father is the true husbandman. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, notice that every branch is in him. The implication is if you're in him, you should be bearing fruit. But... Let me make a contrast here before we go any further. Notice there's a difference between being in him, meaning being saved, and bearing fruit. 
The in him is the part that he did for you when you made when you accepted him as your Lord and Savior. The bearing fruit is your choice. Chapter 15 is about the individual's responsibility. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit or no longer bears fruit, I'll lift it up. And every branch that bears fruit, I will wash it or clean it that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean. Really, the word now should be the word already. Already you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. So what does that mean? That means it's a continual cleansing. It's a continual washing of the water by the word. In other words, the way you abide in him, the way you stay in him, the way you maintain your fellowship with him is one way and only one way, and that's through the word. And that's what he's going to be talking about for the rest of the chapter. Verse 4, but these things have I told you that when the, uh, wait a minute, I skipped chapters. Excuse me. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. Well, we see how that happens. He's not talking about being saved. He's not talking about relationship. He's talking about maintaining fellowship. He maintains the relationship. That's what chapter 14 is all about. I will go to the Father. I will prepare a place for you. I will come again. I'll take care of things on that end. Your job is to take care of things here while you're still here on the earth, and that's to abide or maintain fellowship with me. And that's the key to bearing fruit. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can you except you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me or separate from me, cut off from me, you can do nothing. Now, again, he's talking about fellowship. He's talking about the key to bearing fruit in this earth as a Christian is to maintain fellowship. Now, folks, I would submit to you something that may seem simple on the surface, but is really is profound if you look at the body of Christ. There is so much of the word of God that the church at large, especially the American church, has rejected as truth. Well, don't you think that has some kind of impact on the fruit that we bear? If the church wasn't rejecting the part of the word that it does reject as truth, do you think the church would be known as powerless like it is now? Basically, the church nowadays, the modern-day church, is getting people, and the American church, for the most part, the American church is getting people saved that they can convince into believing Jesus. But Jesus got people saved in the early days of the church by doing miracles. Well, why didn't the church do miracles now? Because they rejected his truth. So they're not going to bury any miracle fruit, are they? Why? Because they've severed themselves from that aspect of the word. Do you see my point? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Verse 5, he that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. Fellowship brings forth fruit. For without or severed from me, you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather him and cast him into the fire, and they are burned. So, of course, verse 6 means, uh, once again, bear fruit or else, because if you don't, you'll be thrown into the fire. Well, that fire has to be hell, right? And so he's saying that Christians can lose their salvation if they're not good enough. That's not what he's saying, folks. Not what he's saying at all. Let me remind you of a couple of things. First of all, do you remember Luke chapter 8? Uh, Luke chapter 8 and verse 18, Jesus is talking about the um, uh, the parable of the sower and the word. Luke's account says this. Uh, he ends the story. Take heed now, take heed therefore how you hear. For whosoever hath to him shall be given. Now he's talking about hath ears to hear the word, right? That's what everything about the parable of the sower and the, the sower and the word is all about. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. 
It's the attention and the care you give to the Word of God in your life that will determine the results you get. What you bear, the fruits you bear in your life, some 30, some 60, and some 100-fold. It all comes down to the association with, the connection with, and the attention to the Word. So he says in verse 18, Take heed therefore how you hear. For whosoever hath ears to hear, to him shall be given. And whosoever hath not ears to hear, from him shall be taken away even that which he seemeth to have. What does that mean? From him shall be taken away that which he seems to have. What does it mean? It means he won't bear fruit. It means not only will he not bear fruit, some 30, some 60, and some 100 fold, he'll lose ground. In other words, the word of God is the only thing that will enable a person to bear fruit. That's what he's saying. Now, notice in verse 6 again, I want to show you something. Remember, Jesus is talking, his subject is fruit. He's talking abiding in, talking about abiding in me for what purpose? So that you can bear fruit. God wants you to bear fruit. I've enabled you to bear fruit because you're in me. Now it's your responsibility to abide in me. There's a difference between being in him and abiding in him. Being in him means salvation. It means the relationship that's formed because of the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Abiding in him is an individual's decision to walk in fellowship through the word. So now he says, notice verse 6, if a man abide not in me. Folks, please understand and look this up. Don't take my word for it. Look this up. The word man is not in verse 15 or chapter 15. Ever. The Greek word that's translated man in the King James is not there. It says if one. Now notice the tense. That's important because it's talking it's going to change tenses on you. Notice it says if one abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered and men gather them. I thought he was one. If he's one, what are men gathering in them, in plurals, or in multiples? And men gather them and cast them. That them is in italics, so it's not there. And cast into the fire, and they, more than one, are burned. Now, why is Jesus, is Jesus just being flippant about this so that we're left to try to figure it out on our own? Or is he speaking specifically? Why in the world would he not be speaking specifically? He's giving them final instructions before he goes to the cross. If there's ever been a time for Jesus to be specific, this is the time. So much so that John is the only gospel writer that tells us about this. And John must have sat on this for for 60 years, having the Holy Ghost remind him over and over and over again. Remember what Jesus said? There's nobody taking notes from this, folks. Nobody's at the table writing. They're left to be reminded by the Holy Ghost after the fact. Well, Matthew was there, but Mark and Luke weren't. So they're left to the Holy Ghost reminding them or describing to them or impressing upon them what they want, what he wants them to relate. Matthew doesn't give us any of the details. Now John, some 60 years later, comes back and says, you may not be aware of this, but Jesus told us this. I didn't even remember this for a while, but the Holy Ghost reminded me that Jesus said this. So you better believe he's talking specifically. Sure, he's talking specifically. So notice he says, if one abide not in me. Now, what does he mean? He's not talking about somebody not in Christ. He's talking about somebody not being in fellowship through the word, not continuing on. He said, if one abide not in me or is severed from me, he is cast forth as a branch. Now, wait a minute. I thought he was the branch. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He's cast forth as a branch. Wait a minute. How can it be as a branch if he's already a branch? We've got some issues here, right? Not if you understand that the whole purpose of Jesus' discourse here is talking about bearing fruit. Where he says, if one abide not in me, if one is severed from me, if he's broken in fellowship, what's the end result? We already know. He's already told us that. If you break fellowship with him, you don't lose your salvation, but you lose your opportunity or your ability to produce fruit. So now he's saying, if one is fruitless, because he's severed from me, because he's not continuing in fellowship. If one is fruitless, then he's cast forth as a branch. 
Why? Because the branch is producing stuff that's not worth keeping. And men gather them, them, not him, not the branch, but them meaning the worthless fruit that the branch was producing. Folks, the whole purpose that he's talking about is the difference in eternal fruit and earthly fruit. He's not saying, if you separate yourself from me, separate yourself in fellowship by not walking the word, you don't produce anything in your life. He's saying you don't produce anything for eternity in your life. So what's he saying? He's saying it's the difference between spiritual fruit and carnal fruit. Paul talks about the works of the flesh as opposed to the fruit of the spirit. Well, the works of the flesh are certainly works, aren't they? The fruit of the Spirit is not the only thing that you can produce. It's not either love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and temperance, or nothing. It's either love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, fruitfulness, faithfulness. I messed them up. Faithfulness, peace, and joy, whatever the rest of them are, the the list of nine. Set them right the first time. It's either that or earthly fruits, earthly works, adultery, idolatry. Lying, stealing, all the kinds of stuff that he mentions up front. Right? It's fellowshipping with him that keeps us out of doing the works of the flesh. He's talking about producing fruit. He's talking about producing eternal fruit. So if he says if a person is separate from me, if he's separated in fellowship from me, not relationship, but separated in fellowship from me, what's the result of his life going to be? Well, we know it's the works of the flesh. So what happens to a man's works According to the scripture, what happens to a man's works? Notice he goes on to say, if a man abide not in me, that means he's severed from me. He is cast forth as a branch and is withered and men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Let me read to you from Matthew 13. Matthew 13, Jesus is talking about the end time. Let's start in verse um, 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went unto the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, He that sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them that do iniquity. So I want you to notice something. First of all, we made mention earlier where it says in verse 6 of John chapter 15, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them together. The word men is not in the in the 15th chapter. Greek word man or men is not there. It says one in verse six, if a man, if one abide not in me. And then later it says, and men, it literally it should be translated and they. Well, who is the they? Jesus just says here that they is the angels. So he says in verse 41, the son of man shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out of the kingdom, out of his kingdom, two things. Number one, all things that offend. Number two, and them which do iniquity. So what is the reaping work of the angels at the end? To gather offending things and the the workers of iniquity. In other words, the unsaved. How does that fit with anything? Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter 3, we'll start reading in verse... 11. Now, verse 10. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds thereon, but let every man take heed how he builds thereon. Now, what's the foundation Paul laid? The word of God. He went into a city, preached the word, started a church. He laid the foundation of the word, right? So he says, take heed, let every man take heed how he builds thereupon. 
For other foundation can no man lay than is laid that which is Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying there's only one foundation for the church to be built on, and that's Jesus. Now, you can lay a lot of other foundations in your life. You can lay a foundation of, of, of your job. You can lay a foundation of, of leisure time and pleasure, pleasurable activities, the house on the lake, the houseboat, whatever. You can lay all kinds of foundations in your life, but there's only one foundation that the church is built on. What he's talking about is what you give attention to. He says, there is no other foundation for the church except that which has already been laid, which I laid for you when I was there, and that's Jesus. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. In other words, he's saying there's different options. You may be in Christ. The question is, are you going to abide in him? If you're going to abide in him, then your life is going to produce eternal things, which are represented by the gold, silver, and precious stones. If you're not going to abide in him, that you're going to produce things in your life, works of the flesh, that are represented by wood, hay, and stubble. We all know that, right? I mean, that's not controversial. Nobody has to have a degree to figure that one out. So then he goes further and he says, Every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Now, every man's work is the fruit that you produce in your life. As a branch who is in Christ, the question is, are we abiding in him? Our fruit, what we produce in our lives, will tell the story. It'll show one way or the other, right? If any man's work abide, uh, well, I backed up. Let me back up. No, I read verse 13. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide or lives on, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So Paul's telling us by the Holy Ghost, our works are tried, not us. Our condition is assured because of what Jesus has done, because we're in him. But our works are going to be examined or tried by fire as to whether or not they are eternal works. If so, we'll receive a reward. If they're earthly works, carnal works, works of the flesh, then they'll burn up. Back to John fifteen six. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch. In other words, his works are gathered up just like everybody else's. And men gather them, really the angels gather them, and cast into the fire, and they are burned. Not him, they, the works. So the whole thing is about producing fruit, fruit that lasts. He's saying that the only way we can produce eternal fruit is to abide in him. That's when he starts in chapter, or in verse 7. Now he's saying, now that you understand how it works, I'm the only abiding in me, staying in fellowship with me, who you can no longer see, but can only fellowship with through the word. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. What's the context? Bringing forth fruit. What kind of fruit? Eternal fruit. Doing the same works that Jesus did when he was here on the earth. Herein, verse 8, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Now, folks, if you've got the word abiding in you, you're not going to be asking for carnal things. You're not going to be asking for things contrary to the word of God. You're not going to be asking for things that you that just serve your flesh. Now, that doesn't mean you won't ask for things that you need in the flesh. Because God supplies your needs. He knows what you need here on the earth. But it means the things that you even get in the in the flesh, the things that you need to serve you in the flesh will have an eternal purpose. I don't know if you know this or not, but you paying your bills has an eternal purpose. You've been able to pay your house payment has an eternal purpose. You've been able to buy food for your family has an eternal purpose. Now, the devil will tell you those are just carnal things. Oh, you terrible person. You're just interested in carnal needs. No, because I'm abiding in him and his word is abiding in me. I'm looking out for the ones that God's given me and to take charge of. 
Bible says if a man provides not for his own, especially for the household of God, he's worse than an infidel. He's denied the faith and worse than an infidel. That means if I ignore my earthly responsibilities here, I'm worse than the unbeliever. Then that means taking care of the ones that God's given me charge of has an eternal purpose. Can you see it? Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. The as I have loved you, or as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, is talking about the character of God's love. God loves you just the same as he loves Jesus. And you should love God just as Jesus loved God. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Now we know how to abide in him. Keeping the commandments of the word of God. Even as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. In other words, verses 1 through 10 are all about your joy being full. Well, that does away with the notion that God's going to get you if you don't bear fruit. I don't know anybody that can have joy over that. But then notice something that's even more important in my opinion, and that is the only way you're ever going to really have joy in life is to abide in him through the word. There's no joy otherwise. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. He's explaining, here's an example of my love for you. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Notice he didn't say, I'm your friend. He says, you are mine. Why? Because he wouldn't be our friend, or he's proven the fact that he is our friend, that he laid down his life for us. The question is, are we going to be his friends? Now, folks, there's only one other person in the Bible that God calls his friend, and that was Abraham. He's saying, I'm putting you in the same category as Abraham. Abraham was able to talk to God pretty straight. And God showed him what he was going to do before he ever did it. Jesus goes on and says, Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord does. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. This word friends means more than just acquaintances. It means someone you're in covenant with. It means you're my special partner. And I'll show you what I'm going to do. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and have ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. He keeps talking about fruit. Only way, one way to do that, and that's to abide in him, to fellowship with him through the word. And that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he which may give it you. Again, he's talking about glorifying the Father by doing the works of Jesus and getting our prayers answered. Folks, whether you know this or not, this is what Jesus called love in action. In other words, God loves you enough to answer your prayers like he did Jesus. And remember, standing before Lazarus' tomb, Jesus said, Father, I thank you that you hear me. And I know you hear me always. But I'm just saying it because of the people that are listening in. The one outstanding characteristic of the church should be that our prayers get answered. Why don't they? Because so much of the church world didn't walk in fellowship with the Lord. They've explained away the word. They've denied certain parts of it that their, their denomination or their group doesn't accept. But the word hadn't changed just because somebody says that we don't accept that part. Verse 17, these things I command you that you love one another. Isn't it interesting that Jesus had to command us three times to love each other? He didn't say, and, and, and this would be a good idea. He commanded us three times. These things I command you, that you love one another. He must have known we were going to have a problem with that. Now the bad news. Verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of this world or of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Five times he mentions the world. He's talking about the contrast. He's making the contrast between the system, this world system, and those that are in him and abiding in him. Remember the word that I said unto you, verse 20, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, folks, we can read this over and we can think, oh, wow, that's interesting that he would say that. The guys that he's talking to are the ones that are going to be persecuted. They've gone in chapter 13 from being upset to where chapter 14, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled because I'm going to, I'm comforting you and I'll send you the comforter and so forth. Now he's given them responsibility in chapter 15, lifts them up and says, love like God loves you like he loves me. You can love God like I love God. The work can continue. You can bear fruit if you abide in me. And now he says, and they're going to come after you. And there goes their heart again. Man, we thought we just had gotten over that. Now Jesus is talking about being persecuted and hated. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake. Because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, then they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak or covering or excuse for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no other man did. Now, folks, please notice something. Jesus said, here's how you can know that I'm the one from the father. We're the works of Muhammad. We're the works of Buddha or Confucius. Or Gandhi, for goodness sakes. All the people that, that others hold up as another way, an alternative way. Notice what Jesus said, and he didn't mince any words about it either. He said, if I had not done the works among them, which no other man did. Now, there's some prophets that did some pretty cool stuff, but nothing like Jesus. If I had not done among them the works which no other man did, then they had not had sin. But now they have both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Can I ask you a question, folks? Why is it that the world consists of people that say that we should be tolerant of every religion except Christianity? The people that are preaching tolerance in our country? Tolerance for Islam, tolerance for, for, for shamanism, Wiccanism, Wiccans, or whatever they call it. I don't know, whatever. We've got to be tolerant. Need to expose our children to all different types of religion. Why is it that Christianity is the only one that gets a short stick? Somebody explain that to me. Well, Jesus just did. He said, the reason that they hate you is because they hate me. And the ones that hate me hate the one that sent me. What that means is all this malarkey that the world spouts off about ways to God and being tolerant of other religions, they know that it doesn't have anything to do with God. They know because of the wickedness of their own hearts. There's only one way to God, and that's the reason why Christianity is the only religion that really is persecuted. Because it's the real deal. And those that are motivated by hate have to get rid of the real deal when it comes to God. Notice what Jesus said. All these things are true because that it must be fulfilled, which was written. They hated me without a cause. What in the world did Jesus ever do to anybody to make them hate him? Why did Israel reject him so much? All he's doing is healing the sick. All he's doing is getting people set free. Why did the Jews, the religious leaders, come out so so strongly against Jesus? What did he do? Jesus even asked him. He said, I've done many good works among you. For which one are you trying to stone me this time? They hated me without a cause. 
Folks, people try to put the church down. Well, the reason that I don't have anything to do with Christianity is because those Christians are always trying to proselytize. They're always trying to convert people. Now, the reason they hate Christianity is because of the wickedness of their own hearts. Jesus is always hated without a cause. And the followers of Jesus are always hated without a cause, too. Doesn't mean the followers always do everything right. There are some Christians that have done some stupid things out there. But it's still about Jesus, not about us. But this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their heart. Or written in their law, excuse me. They hated me without a cause. Now, after telling us that we're going to be persecuted, people are going to come against us and so forth, he turns it right back around to here's our source of strength. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. This word testify means to be a witness. It's talking about doing the works of Jesus again. They'll see the same works in you. Why? Because you're abiding in me, producing fruit. And you also shall bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Chapter 15 is about our responsibility toward God, folks. It's about our decision whether or not to abide in him. It's not about lip service. It's not about going to church. It's not about doing all the, the witnessing or whatever other groups say is, are doing good works. It's about producing eternal results. And you do that every day of your life. Every day you're producing some kind of work, either work that will burn up when it's tried because it's just for today, it's just for the time being, or it's an eternal result. Well, I didn't do anything today, Pastor Mike. I just read my Bible and prayed. Guess what? You produced eternal results. Well, I meant to get to it today, but I just got busy doing other things. Have you ever noticed that if you'll set a time to either pray or read your Bible, have you ever noticed how everything will get in the way of that time? You'll remember stuff. When you kneel down to pray, you will remember stuff that needed to be done for a month. And all of a sudden, it'll just come to you. Oh, my Lord, I need to do this. Why? Why does it work that way? Because everything about the spirit of this world and the work of the devil is to try to distract you from producing that which was good that which is uh, uh, producing eternal results. To distract you from producing eternal results. That's what bearing fruit is all about. Sometimes the fruit manifests in somebody else's life when you minister to them. But most of the time the fruit just manifests in your own life. Because you strengthen yourself according to the word. You strengthen yourself by praying. You do something that brings you just a one step or maybe even a half step closer in fellowship with the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that we do abide in you, Father, because we put the word first in our lives. What a privilege it is to grow in you, Father, to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a privilege it is to know that we're producing eternal results. Thank you, Father, for equipping us. Thank you that we get to glorify the Lord because we're abiding in him. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.